Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, brought to you by Banyan Books. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee, and very excited today to be joined by Stephen Jenkinson and Kimberly Ann Johnson in conversation about their book, Reckoning. Although we have people joining us from everywhere in the world for these broadcasts, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound in Vancouver is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Of course, everybody, please feel free to submit your questions during this event today. Kimberly and Stephen will get to as many of those as we can, and we thank you for joining us. Kimberly Ann Johnson is a sexological body worker, somatic experiencing trauma resolution practitioner, birth doula, and single mom. She specializes in helping women prepare for birth, recover from birth injuries and birth trauma, and heal from sexual trauma. She's the founder of Magamama.com, an international holistic women's healthcare resource for expectant and new mothers. She's also the co-founder of the Stream School for Postpartum Care, where she trains birth professionals, yoga teachers, somatic therapists, and body workers to help women prepare for birth and recover from birth. She's also the author of The Fourth Trimester and Call of the Wild, of course, both available at Banyan Books. If you'd like to learn more about Kimberly and her work, you can visit her website, which is KimberlyAnnJohnson.com. Back in 2021, Kimberly invited Stephen Jenkinson for a conversation on her sex birth trauma podcast. This led to a second conversation the very next day and eventually to a series of five live conversations over five Sundays, a kind of retrospective of Stephen's major works, including his four books and his devotional poetic music project with Gregory Hoskins titled Nights of Grief and Mystery. These seven conversations became the essence of the book they're here to discuss today, titled Reckoning. Stephen Jenkinson is a spiritual activist, author, ceremonialist, and farmer. Stephen teaches internationally and is the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School. With master's degrees from Harvard University in theology and the University of Toronto in social work, he is the author of several books including the award-winning Die Wise, 
a manifesto for sanity and soul. Stephen is the subject of the National Film Board of Canada feature-length documentary, Grief Walker, and a shorter documentary directed by Ian McKenzie, which is titled Lost Nation Road. If you'd like to learn more about Stephen and his work, please visit his website, which is orphanwisdom.com. This book, Reckoning, is the cultural ciphering of Stephen Jenkinson and Kimberly Ann Johnson. It's an unguarded, sober meeting with spirit work, elderhood, grief, and plague, and building culture in a me-first era. And as Stephen and Kimberly say, it's to be tried at home with companions. Banyan community, please join me in a warm welcome for Stephen Jenkinson and Kimberly Ann Johnson. Great. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Now, there's a quote from Stephen that I thought might be a good entry point since this is an interview format, and I'll, I'll share it with you, and, and it leads into a sort of the mood and, and then a question that we might want to start things off with. So here's the quote. Realize that appearing uninvited across the airwaves in the lives of strangers is a privilege, and it's a privilege to be earned and to be earned again during the course of the interview. The parties to an interview should be governed by the etiquette of awe. Now, in the conversation titled, Here They Eat Teachers in Reckoning, the first thing Stephen covers is interviews and how they generate seduction in the direction of omniscience. And he says the leaven to calm that arousal is mystery. So I'm wondering then what words you both have around our conversation today and how we might approach it and how the audience might engage and listen in a way that might bear some kind of fruit. Don't know who would like to go first. Steven, you can take that one. Okay. Uh, you know, the first answer, the first question, the first answer is always a sacrificial lamb in an interview. Nobody remembers what anybody said. It's where you get your yeah, yeahs out and, and sort of clear the decks and clear your throat. But let me see if I can not do that. Um, I like the word awe a lot. It's not very comfortable in the mouth in, in English, but uh, I like the notion. And to be full of awe is, um, should be in the operator, operator's manual that were issued at birth. You know, but you have to learn it. No, and in a in a culture that's addicted to competence, awe is an early casualty, very typically. Unless you want to get really good at it, in which case you're secretly not very awestruck anyway. So I'm I'm a fan. I'm a fan of uh, discontinuity and disillusionment, uh, which I think are part and parcel of an engaging with a, a fellow human, right? And uh, I mean, who wouldn't want to swap their prejudices for something that counts? I'll say something. Uh, a lot of people comment even now because um, Stephen Jenkinson and I did a podcast together this week and people write in and they comment on the pauses. They even say, I thought maybe I'd, I lost the connection or I thought that um, you, the, there was an audio problem, but actually there was just a pause. And the way that I, one of the ways that I listen is 
kind of pretending that I'm a sieve and letting the letting it wash through me and trusting that what needs to stick will stick and what needs to wash through will wash through and that it'll come around again. And so the pauses are in part because of that, because I approach this as if it's something that I don't know about because it's coming from a very different place than the other things that I do know about. And rather than trying to fit it in like, oh, I hear this. Oh, yeah, that relates to this other thing in this other tradition. And, and that's just like this. I do the opposite. I flip it and I just imagine I actually and it's not even imagination. It's real. I actually don't understand a lot of what's being said. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why my piece at the end of the book is so short, because I still didn't really understand very much of um, what I was what was swirling around me and in me. So that would be my invitation is listen like you're a sieve and don't forget who you are. Don't forget everything that's brought you to this place in your life, but also don't assume that biting at it is the thing that's going to allow you to get your teeth into it, that there might be something else that would allow a new organization or uh, that would shake the, Set the sediment. I can't hear you right now, Ross. My apologies. I've I've had to mute my mic because there's a an odd squeaking sound coming from my microphone that we couldn't handle ahead. So I'm <clears throat> just letting the audience know that's there. Thank you both for for responding to that and. Kimberly, that, that's a good lead-in. Your response was a very good lead-in because I'm wondering maybe first if you can give our audience a little bit of context for the lead-up to this project with Stephen, how it came to be. And then also maybe if you can tell us a little bit about how it's impacted and changed things for you and where you're at now um, that you've had some time and space from it to sort of take it in a little bit more in yourself and in your life. Those are two huge questions. Uh, so the first question is about how I came to the point to meet with Stephen Jenkinson. And uh, it was last year around this time. So we were one year less into the pandemic. And I was, I had already moved across the country, moved back across the country. I live in San Diego. I'd moved to Brooklyn, New York, and then my daughter was going to go into full-time online school when I didn't feel good about that. So I moved back to San Diego to be closer to my parents and in a place where she could go to school in person. Uh, before the pandemic started, I was already very tired of working online. I brought my business online a couple of years before, uh, kind of unintentionally, but then it caught on. And so I was spending most of my days in my apartment in front of my screen. I used to be a yoga teacher. So I used to spend a lot of time with people all day long, touching them, breathing with them, being around them, talking to them. And so it was a very big shift for me. But financially, it was it made a lot of things possible that weren't there before. 
And then the pandemic happened. So a lot of people started experiencing what I was already experiencing, which is why I went to New York in the first place, which is like, I need to be around people and strangers and interact with people. And uh, so that's why I moved in the first place. Uh, then I put out my second book, Call of the Wild, which is about specifically how women heal differently than men do. And within a couple of weeks, there was a big slander campaign that went underway and um, it was really devastating, um, partially because most of my work up to that point had been advocating for women's health and advocating for women to have the kind of births that we want and to be well taken care of in the pelvic and gynecological settings. And uh, because the work is so outside of traditional models of care, because I'm not a doctor or a physical therapist, uh, on the far right, people likened my work to prostitution. Uh, one of my mentors who uh, is 80 years old, his credentials were called into question because he was working with me. That really was hard for me because I felt like knowing what I do I can stand behind what I do, but putting other people at risk for what I do was pretty much intolerable for me, especially someone who is 80 and, and not in great health at the moment that that happened. Uh, I had started a business that I needed to take apart because the values of the people that I started the business with were different than mine. And that was coming to the surface because of vaccine debates and uh, you know, I was living in the middle of what so many of, I think everyone who's lived through this time has seen that you think people, you're on common ground with someone and then you realize all of a sudden there's a, a valley of space between you and what are relationships really made of? How do we make a relationship? I, the reason I moved to Brooklyn was because I wanted to be a part of a community. I wanted to I didn't think I was going to have any more children. I wanted to parent other people's children. Some of my friends were single and wanted to have kids. I was like, I'll come live next to you and take care of them. And all of those plans just unraveled and shriveled. And specifically, I'm not interested in, I actually, I don't know anything really about vaccines and I'm not interested in pathology. So, but I am interested in discourse and dialogue and humanity. So I thought, okay, I have a podcast. I'll invite five people who have completely different backgrounds and completely different choices and points of view on the vaccine and on what's happening. And then after I had those five conversations, I was actually more dismayed than heartened because I realized I would have to have like 50 of them to make it even remotely responsible. I didn't wanna fact check people uh and there was so much kind of secrecy and so at that time matthew stillman who's on this call who's a dear friend of mine said why don't you talk to stephen jenkinson and i wrote in on a sunday and i thought oh well it's going to take months to be able to do that and then natalie got back to me and said well how about wednesday so by wednesday i was already on a call and i can say at that time you know i was really um I mean, people can describe it different ways. It could be described as grief stricken. It could be described as depressed. It could be described as um, confused. Uh, and 
those conversations, you know, we had one and then I wrote Natalie, Stephen's wife at the end of the night and just said, wow, I feel like I just had like an invited indictment and I've been crying all day. And I, and then immediately Stephen wrote back to me and said, well, would you like to talk again tomorrow? And I know better than to refuse an invitation like that. So I was like, okay, here we go. And, uh, and that's the, that's the context for how I arrived to have those initial conversations. And then so many people, when I decided to put those conversations out as public material, it was just overwhelming how many people wrote in and related to so many of the aspects of what we talked about. So that's the answer to the first half, but that's a long answer. So I'm going to leave that there for, for a second. Sure. Yeah. I think we can, we can probably dive into the other one as we, as we go along, but thank you. That, that gives us a really good uh, entry point to understand the context of your life coming into this. Um, and Stephen, I wanted to ask you, one of the things you get into is the term relevant. And you talk about how back in the sixties, you know, that meant relevant to 17 year olds. And then you point to the observation that the world as it is now is all centered around appealing to 17 year olds, basically. Now, when you, when I heard you say that, I thought, yeah, of course, that's, that's gotta be true. But I, I also, I wonder about if you could give some, some examples for us, for our audience in how the world is pandering to 17 year olds, just because maybe some of us are swimming in it so much that we don't even actually notice. Well, first of all, it's not, the most likely, I'm not the most likely candidate to register accurately the appeals and the seductions directed at 17 year olds for obvious reasons. They pass me by entirely. I have to get in their way to get the general uh, tone because uh, literally I'm, I'm not any relevant demographic that anybody's trying to sell anything appeals to. There's the first indicator. I'm not saying that anybody my age automatically gets a pass into credibility. Certainly not. But I will go out on a ledge and say, it could be that we could extend the span of experience, a kind of conditional benefit of the doubt. If, if people my age insist on being pandered to, well, I guess it's no different than a 17-year-old. If you insist on showing up all the time in the programming, in the imagery and so on, same. If on the other hand, something about your longing for a better day is recognizable in what's happening, then you don't need to be there. You don't need to appear. Your longing is spoken for. And in a time like this, I think that'll do. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, um, it's not easy to be um, so desperately tempered by life at 17 that there's a something available to you called uh, radical moderation. It's just not easy. In fact, I'm not sure it's in the cards. So, I, I just want just it's just occurred to me now. So this is the book in question, the one we're talking about. And I don't know if it shows up in the resolution of the screen, but the background 
could be mis misinterpreted as a description of uh, Kimberly's psyche upon uh, first, first or second contact with me. In actual fact, there we go, very fast. In actual fact, what you're looking th at there is a, not only Japanese, but I'll say for now, Japanese practice of preserving wood that's d designed to be outdoors and to hold up under pressure and weather and so on without the use of chemicals or, or things of that kind. So it's a charring, you see. It's a charring that works. It's a charring that I wouldn't say conserves, but um, prompts. I think that's what the book is. I think that's what I'm, that's each of us in our way, Kimberly and I, are making the case that being born into a troubled time, as 17-year-olds have been, um, must necessarily prompt you to asking yourself, what does that mean? Does that mean you're getting ripped off? Does that mean the better day that should properly have been your birthright has somehow been stolen from you and the real moral order is to determine the bad guys and to uh, punish accordingly, which of course I'm not making that venue, that veneer up, but you could say you, that maybe the greater challenge by far is to understand yourself as probably needed. Uh, however needy you may be, you're probably needed. There's scant evidence, but we could marshal it in a sentence and say, you're born to a troubled time. There's a hole in that time. The approximate shape and soul, uh, excuse me, shape and size and valence of you. And to that extent, you belong. So the decision to belong somewhere when you'd rather be elsewhere, there's something valiant about that, something, something extraordinarily brave and worthy of citizenship. Um, I'm not sure that that sells well to 17, but I'm not saying it should. 17-year-olds got enough to do without trying to be a citizen of the, of the kind that I've just described. But let's imagine that as while they're busy being 17 and fending off the sexualization and the objectification of the marketplace, I hope they are. Hopefully, occasionally at least, they glimpse someone twice or three times their age engaged in this kind of radicalized citizenship that I give you a, a, a sense of now. And maybe, maybe in the early going, maybe that's enough to be a working alternative to being the center of the universe. Now, I know that, uh, you know, the attention span of, you know, mainstream cultures or whatever you want to call it is, is not, uh, necessarily strong enough for, for something like apprenticeship. Stephen, I vaguely understand that you apprenticed to a master storyteller in your younger years, though I don't know much about that. And Kimberly, I understand you you did have a guru. I'm not sure if you still are with that guru. I think it, it sounds like there might have been some issues there that caused you to go in a different direction. I'm wondering if we could just talk a little bit about apprenticeship, what it is, what it means, what it's for. 
And maybe if either of you want to weave in some of your own stories around apprenticing to or being apprenticed to over the years, that, that would be fitting as well. Yes, I did have a guru. I don't anymore. Uh, it was a bit of a stereotypical arrangement. So uh, I was studying non-dual philosophy. And as a result of that, I thought that surrendering, I didn't exactly know what that meant. And uh, my teacher fell in love with me and crossed all kinds of sexual and physical boundaries. And as is true in a lot of those circumstances, the, the teaching was more in the relationship and how I was able to negotiate that and, and leave it than in the content itself. Although there were elements of it that were very big learnings. And it was also an extremely seductive situation because uh, I was his only student and he had so much knowledge that I wanted that I didn't know any other way to get. So it, there was a bit of a blackmailing situation in a way because I wanted to learn it so bad, but I could only learn it if I transacted in certain ways. So that was a long time ago now. That was 18 years ago. Uh, so that's a little bit on that. But I've had some really amazing experiences that I would say approximate apprenticeship uh, in the work that I do. And it's been one of the most satisfying experiences that I've had to take money out of the equation when someone wants to learn what I'm doing and have them just come be in session room with me for 20, 25, 30 sessions. And they sit in the corner and sometimes I ask them to put hands on with me and they become a part of the session work itself. And one of the most recent times the trade for the person learning with me was taking me hunting because she um, lived in Montana and had deer hunted for a long time. And I wrote a book on wildness and animal nature, but it was, I don't have that much contact with the wild. So I'm writing it as a suburban person, imagining the wild and knowing certain things. And I thought I better put my money where my predator mouth was if I was going to uh, release a book on it. So in exchange for being in session and living in my house with me for 10 days and uh, being a part of learning that way has been one of my favorite uh, ways to learn. I'm a rolfer, which is a kind of body work. And about eight weeks of our training is silent. So we just sit in a room and we watch sessions being given. We don't give sessions. We don't, there's nothing didactic about it. It's just observation. So uh, those experiences very formative for me and also uh, i look forward to more of them and more more people that want to to do that but that being said it's very hard because i'm a single mom and that means someone you know it's there's a lot of pieces that have to come together to facilitate that being a possibility for me to be able to be present enough and to have people in and out of my house and to be a good enough mom while i'm doing that uh there it's it's a circumstance that needs a lot of constellating factors to arise. Thank you, Kimberly. Stephen, um, do you have anything to add? I mean, particularly what I might ask you is, you know, the tra 
more quote unquote traditional purposes around a print being apprenticed to an elder, let's say, and the undoing that is involved in that. Well, the, the preamble for me would be just to reflect for a moment on the quote unquote, the guru thing, which uh, I would be the suburban outsider to that scenario. But from this point of view, it strikes me that, um, I'm going to use the word Americans. I don't mean citizens of the United States. I mean, denizens of this thing called America. Americans are not that good at gurus, but it's not, it's not clear either that gurus are good at Americans. And so, um, it shows, you know, it shows on all sides. It seems, uh, are there exceptions? Well, that's why they call them that probably, but I think there's so many stories where that prevails over and over and over again, it prevails against training. It prevails against devotions and vows. And it's quite extraordinary how pervasive and powerful the undoing nature of it is. And I wouldn't mistake that for apprenticeship ever. I don't think that's what it's seduction has no place in apprenticeship. Longing on the other hand does. The, as Kimberly said, you know, the desire to, to learn and, and to be faithful to the understanding that you don't know, you know, and that, that you have a sense of the tremendous poverty that's a consequence of the accidents of your birth and, and a sense of uh, devotion about doing something about it while you still can. I mean, those things are extremely noble, but they have to be met by a nobility on some other side that is a, a place where they can unfold. I don't say safely. It's not a, it's not, I'm not a fan of the word or the understanding, but certainly, certainly free of, of being, um, certainly free of what you heard. Okay. Uh, apprenticeship. It's the same root as comprehend, apprehend, apprehensive. Uh, and it basically it refers to, this shape right here, this thing right here, and specifically the capacity to grasp, which is why one of our synonyms for understand is indeed to grasp. And uh, people wiser than me have made the following observation about this thing of ours, this hensile possibility, is that um, this is the tongue of the hand, which allows a degree of elaboration and articulation that's unavailable if you have five of these, but four of these and one of these is, is a whole other enterprise. And uh, you could then turn it slightly sideways and say, and this of course would be the tongue, excuse me, the, the uh, thumb of the mouth. So these are very interchangeable scenarios. Uh, an apprenticeship that is engaged in uh, learning the mystery of lightning or electricity. Uh, the apprenticeship to uh, woodworking, learning the mystery of a forest, still standing. Um, and uh, I was lucky in that I was in an undeclared apprenticeship. So there was never any indication that we were doing something, certainly not structured. Um, he just called, he had his wife call me one day and asked me if I would accompany him in a church service that he was doing in suburban Boston when I was going to Harvard. And uh, 
I, I'd never been to a church service in my life, which means that I held them in very high esteem. And uh, I couldn't picture uh, a, a non-practitioner like myself somehow doing a church service or contributing to it in any way that wouldn't bring the whole house down, you see. But he thought otherwise. And so uh, early early lesson was um, that uh, I, I didn't really know what I was capable of. And it was it was time to start learning. And I have to say that uh, I think one of the hallmarks of, of apprenticeship and why it suffers such, such grim possibilities in our time is that the best uh, masters, if we can use the word, the best masters are thieves. What do I mean? I mean, you can, at a certain stage of your life, unchallenged, you can slouch on the threshold of life for years, claiming that you're looking or that you're shopping or that you're trying things out. Actually, what's happening is probably you're suffering for want of some real time engagement with what I would just euphemistically call the real thing. And if you're lucky enough to have some contact with the real thing, your life is a, is a uh, valley of dismay, I think, for a considerable time thereafter, largely because you come to some reluctant awakenness about the fact that you haven't been awake. And I don't think it's all the hallelujah chorus flooding in and filling the valley, you know, with, uh, with praise when that happens. I was extremely fortunate because uh, this guy was the real thing. He's a storyteller. And he was, I didn't even know what a storyteller was. I thought it was a children's entertainer. Such was my, my ghetto understanding of that. And, uh, and he educated me in a ruthless fashion without one moment of instruction. The whole operation was by blistering example. And so he stole from me my ability to slouch at the threshold of my life and mope and complain that I'd never seen the real thing. So what do you want from me? And he set the standard very high because I had seen the real thing. And even though I subsequently, when we parted ways, lived a full decade, 10 years plus in the wilderness, largely as a consequence of how my or my normal life suffered by comparison to the heights that I was lucky enough to scale with him. Still in all, minus the 10 years, I'm not sure that my capacity to have done anything subsequently, I would be able to lay proper claim to and give proper credit for. So a lot of these things are, are a diminishment of the Western understanding of the pure, isolated, pristine thing called self. Uh, I, for one, was very lucky that I lost myself early on and never seemed to have re reacquired it. I have a lot of personality traits, but they're masquerading as an identity. There's a lot of talk these days about privilege in, especially in social justice circles. And, you know, I, for my speaking for myself, someone who's born with almost as much privilege as is, can be had, a white man in the West, middle-class kind of upbringing, uh, I've always tried to ask myself what I'm doing with it, because otherwise I know I'd just tie myself into knots about how unfair it all is. 
And I was, I really loved what you said at one point in reckoning, Stephen, you said, I'm paraphrasing, but basically you said, instead of being accountable for our privilege, you could say that we are actually accountable to our privilege. Can you speak a little bit more to this, this topic? Yeah, uh, I could try. I think the, uh, the privilege yammer is uh, a kind of uh, toxic bloom of self-hatred. I think that's largely what it's become. So that's a, a full disclosure, <laughs> me being transparent on the subject. But uh, what I meant by that uh, observation was this. Look, the, the accidents of your birth, or if, if you will, pardon the language, but it seems to suit, the bullshit luck of your birth, if that's indeed what it was, is something that you really can't take properly. You shouldn't take any credit for. But this doesn't mean that you're without, that it's not, that you're without consequence in how it unfolds. Obviously, you could be opportunistic and cherry pick as you go, socially just one day and um, taking advantage of what's available to you a week later and, and so on. If it's there, and if it's inherently um, bungs up the works, if it inherently skews your capacity to live something like a moral, ethical, po poetic, and mythic life, if that's what um, privilege does, it's not clear to me you should be offloading it necessarily on anybody else. I mean, I learned this lesson very, very nakedly on a live phone-in talk show one time. It's not a bad venue to learn things, but I was one of the guests and I was there because I'd written a book called Money and the Soul's Desires. Right beside me was a guy who was um, sort of third in line for the inheritance of this massive family fortune. But his gig, uh, because he was third in line, uh, third in the birth order, his gig was to uh, administer the family trust, which is the booby prize for, for uh, it seems to me at least, for business types. So he was banging on and, and he said, and he looked at me and he said, well, as you know, of course, money's the root of all evil, as I know personally, apparently. And then he, he went on and then uh, he paused and looked at me for affirmation. And I said, actually, you know, that's a paraphrase and not a very accurate one. That's not actually what it says. I know it sounds biblical to you, but your paraphrase is not biblical at all. <laughs> it's very contemporary. It goes like this. The thing actually says the, the love of money is the root of all evil. It has nothing to do with the money. It has to do with your relationship to it. You see why I'm telling this in the context of privilege. It's your relationship to it, man, where you will find yourself out, you see. So there's a pause. And I said, but anyway, if even if you're right in your paraphrase, I'm just curious. If money is the root of all evil, as you claim, what are you doing giving it away? And the whole place stopped and nobody knew. So rather than absolve, you know, do your best of being unprivileged, deprivileged, uh, post-privileged, I, I can't for the life of me imagine what that would actually look like. You could imagine it this way. If that's the accident of birth and it's placed you there this time around, then, it's, then you're going to have to make some choices. And one of them would be to reconsider the secret certainty you have that it's a kind of curse. 
a socially unjust curse that you've been saddled with and reimagine it as something that you might bear some responsibility to, as you said, and, and in so doing, translate the accidents of your birth into something like, in a very small corner of the world, call your life, a better day is available to someone other than yourself. How to do that is not for me to dictate. I have no idea, uh, you know, as a, as a broad observation, what people ought to do. But as a reconsideration of the, of the imagined toxicity of privilege, you could imagine that your changed relationship to it is a kind of unhinging beginning, one of several that are available. This leads nicely, I think, into a question I had for you, Kimberly. You know, I'm not a parent, but I've got two of them. I know a lot of parents, Stephen and Kimberly, you both are parents. So I think it's natural that in reckoning, this topic came up quite a bit, this topic of parenting and children. Um, and I think this kind of revisits the, the question from the top of the conversation today, Kimberly, in terms of how your encounters with Stephen have impacted your life going forward. Um, I'm curious, particularly around, you know, you, your daughter, I know is still there at home with you. Um, how are you seeing your role as a parent now as compared to before this reckoning project with Stephen? Yeah, not only is she here, she's actually here. She's, I think she's walked through the frame a couple of times with our new puppy. Uh, which could seem completely unrelated, but actually is related uh, because not just because of my daughter, but because of my own sometimes covert desire to maintain lots of options in terms of moving around and living another place. I've been very reluctant possession haver. Uh, so some people are like, oh, I got to clear my stuff out and I got to get rid of my furniture and da, da, da. And I'm like, I've barely ever even owned furniture. So uh, we just got a puppy this week because uh, it's a great lesson in limits. Uh, when your mom tells you to clean your room, it's kind of like, well, it's a bit arbitrary. But when the dog needs to go to the bathroom, not arbitrary. So even though it feels like I don't know if I can handle this because I am a single parent and I have quite a few employees and a decent sized business to run. Uh, I also want my daughter who doesn't have any siblings and who lives alone in the house with me to have the experience of taking care of something. And I think in a lot of ways in the culture, what's construed as a good life is like, you know, I don't, I don't really want to have to work that much. And uh, I would like more free time, but like free time to do what? And I think sometimes we've forgotten like, okay, fair enough. You don't want to like sit in an office nine to seven and under fluorescent lights and like, you know, have the man over you. But then what is your work? What is the work that's happening? Because not being engaged with the world is depressing. And, uh, you know, in our conversations, Stephen talks about being on the prow of a ship. And that his children at this age and his children are, I think, in their late 20s and early 30s. But 
they're not the only thing he's seeing in front of that ship. Uh, I'm parenting a 15 year old. So, and I'm only one parent with one child. So the situation is a little different. Um, and instead of feeling so apologetic about the fact that I'm not able to fulfill every possible configuration of mother, father, godparents, uh, kin now. And I mean, arguably it's also because my daughter's older so she can understand more too. Uh, there is a sense that I'm mothering other people than just her with my work and with what I'm doing in the world. So I think maybe a, a slight amount of guilt is less. Um, but this kind of interaction is not very linear. So a year out, I can't really give some bullet points, but that's why the beginning of my blessing was with questions because those things that I learned, which are true, like how to clean a cast iron skillet, which I'm still not that great at, um, those are small things that I did to take myself closer to things that I wish maybe somebody would have taught me or that it wouldn't have even had to be taught in the proximity of it. I would have just learned it and had the skill uh, coming closer back to those elemental relationships, skills, uh, and longings that are related directly to survival and directly to day-to-day interactions when I, I'm an orphan wisdom student now. And when I was at the school, uh, one of the days I saw Natalie, so Natalie's Steven's wife, and she runs the school together with him and she runs the kitchen and lots of other aspects of hospitality and arranging. And I saw her washing dishes. And this was like at the end of a day where you've already seen her coming in and out of the kitchen a bunch of times. And I was like, oh, you're washing dishes. Um, like, let me do that. Like, you shouldn't be washing dishes. And her response was like, how wonderful that I'm on my feet in these days that I can be washing dishes. And she's much more eloquent than I am, but you know, a blessing to the life that would allow us to be using our hands and washing dishes. And so there's a lot of um, lateral learning that seeps in. That's not so easy for me to say, you know, let me just tell you this. I haven't invested in a small farm out in a rural area at this point. <laughs> like I still live in the same place. And uh, I'm learning little by little. Mm -hmm. Ross, can I chirp in here? That'd be all right? Please, please. At the risk of uh, reading my own words out loud, I'm going to read my own words out loud. And that come from the, I think it's the last page of the book. Apropos of what you've been asking and what Kimberly's been saying. Okay, wise guy, I say to myself, you made that drastic promise a couple of months ago to Kimberly and to her crew. See you in the alley. Literally, your last words. But if every contact with the way it is ends up in the alley, well, it's one thing if I end up there. I've been training for that, and I'm deep into the second act of my three-act play. And the third act, how it ends, well, it's a short one, and everybody knows that. But if the alley's where I end up duking it out with the way it is, maybe that's a fitting end for me to entertain 
and to accede to. But for someone who's just getting the feel of act two with a considerable haul up ahead, alley work might end up as a bad habit or a bad attitude or a bad deal because the rough gods are on Main Street now. And I've got blessings and blasphemies and broken openings to slow them down. I have picked a fight with the way it is. It may not end well. And now the tussle has spilled into your yard. This is me writing to Kimberly directly. And I'm going to have to let that one go and entrust it to you. I'm not going to see any consequence of the work that I've taken up. Not really. Changes take too long to register. So all I've got is the long hand without a lot of time. And you are the long hand. In other words, on, on the act of, on the question about parenting, like I don't, I'm still a parent, but I don't much lead with that at this juncture. And uh, generally speaking, on a good day, my kids forgive me for that and second me to the world, you see. Well, they kind of had to learn how to do it, but they did it pretty well. And it's very, very challenging at any time when the culture is working. It's desperate when the culture is not working very well for the whole apparatus of what should be culture to devolve into a nuclear, and it's a well-named phrase, a nuclear family, where all the functions that are properly village functions descend, cascade, overwhelm, and inundate two people, or in Kimberly's case, one person. This is a default thing. This is not a it's not a great thing. It's nothing to pass on. I don't mean single parenthood. I mean devolved parenthood, devolved village capacity turned into parenthood. And for all of that, one of the great sorrows, I think, of being a parent, speaking as, as one, is the realization that you can glimpse from here, from a standing start, a kind of better day for your kid that you yourself didn't see, but you have no rancor about that until you realize that you're all but powerless to bring about the better day that directly descends upon your child, that your child directly benefits from all the culture labor that you undertake. This is heartbreaking. And the brokenheartedness that ensues could lead you to the following conclusion instead. And it's not settling for second best. It's the best. That you are to a certain degree disqualified in the psychic life of your child because you're, you're simply close and you want certain things from them and the wanting has its own consequence. But if you're lucky enough and if you've worked hard enough to cobble together something like a kind of community by proxy, a kind of village-mindedness instead of a village, then one of the things that becomes available to you is that your child, the psychic and spiritual life of your child, ends up in the hands of those to whom it properly belongs. That means basically anybody but you. You're a custodian when it comes to your kids, but not really much in the way of a, of a master in a master-apprentice arrangement. 
right? And so this was, this what I've just read to you now was me reflecting on this with some lament, obviously. And at the same time, as close as I can get to an inflection of genuine encouragement, which is to say, I have to entrust a certain direct action possibility to the generation younger than me, because I have a different, it's a different regime. And I, I occupy a different place in life than the kind of parental occupations that once upon a time preoccupied me. It's a, it's a fundamental learning for people my age to entrust to the extent that they're able something like the future that they themselves were not quite capable of clicking their heels three times and generating. You, in other words, you want to be able to do that not on your deathbed. In your deathbed, it looks a little obvious, isn't it? It's a little unbecoming. Say over to you. Rather, what you want to do, it seems to me, is if you get a chance, if it's not sudden, and getting old is not sudden, it really isn't. What you want to do is take all your prized stuff. You know, this is a cup is a prized thing for me, product placement and all the rest. And you take all your prized stuff and you start giving it away. You watch it walk out the door and it never comes back. And it circulates in the world where it more properly belongs after temporarily ganging up on you. Yeah. Well, I think there's a psychic equivalent to that, that you entrust your best stuff, understanding that you've done with it to the, the extent to which you were capable of imagining. But your best stuff may belong in other hands well before your demise. And so there's some something about my encounter with Kimberly that prompted that realization again, and it was available to me again. And that's why the last page sounds like it does. We're going to get to one or two audience questions. But first, Kimberly, what's what's coming up for you right now hearing that I see you I see I can see the receptivity in the way you're taking this all in still. Uh, I'm just wondering if you have any words. Uh, I, I just feel awe and gratitude myself. And obviously also a sense of responsibility and a tiny bit of wondering how I got here. Um, why me? You know, that kind of thing. Not in the pity direction, but just kind of of all, of all, the, of all the constellations, how did this happen? And... Also, I've, I never, I, I've learned from Stephen Dinkinson that you don't want to be a stand-in for the things that you, like, I'm, I'm not going to be the stand-in for the voice of all women or the voice of all white people. Or At the same time, there's something maybe a little adjacent that's being a proxy and being willing to um, not exactly a representative, but I take it as an individual uh, 
assignment, but also as a, um, there's something to feeling that horizontally as well. Mm. So it's a, um, it's a holding of the deepening that's been asked of me, a, a, a tenor that's like a note below where I've been operating mm. at the same time as uh, doing everything I can to find out how heart rate can be mobilizing rather than immobilizing, which is still a, something that I need to learn about. How heartbreak can be mobilizing rather than immobilizing. Hmm. So in the book we talk, or Stephen Jenkinson talks about the difference between grief and grievance, and that oftentimes grievance is a stand-in for grief. So we see all of these ways that we're quote unquote empowered to complain, to tear people down, to offer our opinion in public forums where there's no way to actually connect about what might be underneath that grievance, which is where I was coming from when it when I was trying to have a conversation about vaccines. It was like, let's share the let's share the grief about this, the difficulty. And uh for me, I think because heartbreak has also been associated with breakups, which are the worst. Um, and that has felt heartbreak has felt like something that slows me down, but or, or not just slows me down, brings me to a stop. Um, and Stephen Jenkinson has shared how heartbreak could be the thing that not keeps us in bed, that gets us out of bed as well. But I don't totally understand that yet. So I'm still trying to understand that because in my circumstances, both with my daughter, a lot of her friends, a lot of her friends have been in rehab for self-harm or are taking dopamine medication or um, all kinds of what feels to me like huge um Like when a bow breaks on the tree and it grows in another direction because it's the only way, huge distortions of what could actually be, uh, then that, there's, that the, my last piece was me trying to understand, okay, if you don't have hope and you don't have, and you believe that the world might not really get any better, then what do you then then how do you decide where to operate from how do you decide or not even decide because that sounds like a mental thing where do you get the energy to keep going and so stephen jenkinson offered that heartbreak was one of those possibilities stephen do you see anything when you look around at the world from where you're sitting today, that is promising? Or well, promising, certainly. No, it no. promises all kinds of crazy shit in the, in the immediate future, certainly. I don't think you meant by promising just foretelling. You, you meant something closer to reassuring promising. 
right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. okay. Not so much. Not so much. I mean, I tried. I should say, I really tried. Maybe I didn't try hard, hard enough, but um, I gave it. I gave it my my all for a while, and then it simply something laid claim to me, which was not despair. And um, it, 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 I can only characterize it this way. You, you're granted a mind. It's connected to things. Certain things can come out of your mouth as a consequence of you engaging that thing. And this combination from time to time has consequence for other people. Not always reassuring consequence. And then people are in touch with you subsequent to that and let you know that that's the case. And then something doubles down in your sense of responsibility, as it, at least it has for me, where I have to translate whatever you know capacity I have into something that asks more of grown-ups than despair asks of them. And I think that's a that's a community-minded responsibility. I just tell you as a PS, I think we're coming close to the end of our time here. And there's people that wanted to ask something. I'm lucky enough to have a band. We're about to go on the road. Uh, I'm leaving tomorrow, actually, to tour uh, the UK. Terrified about the trip, but deeply looking forward to half the gigs are already sold out. Go figure. Nights of Grief and Mystery is a big sale in, in small venues in the UK this year, at least. And uh, we have a couple records out, and uh, this is straight up product placement I'm engaged in here right now. But we're talking about it, and I think this belongs. So there's a there's a uh, there's a live record called Dark Roads, and there's a piece in there called Beauty Bereft. Now I should say internally to the band, we always called it Fentanyl, because I was actually talking about the op opioid crisis, and I named Fentanyl in early iterations, and then I pictured lawyers you know, lawyers, guns and money and all that. And I said, okay, we can do the same thing. We don't have to mention fentanyl. But here's my point in raising it. Legions of kids coming down from the suburbs of the most prosperous place the world has ever been obliged to bear. And what are they doing? They're engaged in self-medicating for pain because that's what they're employing. They're not employing hallucinogens. That's not what opioids are. They're pain relievers. So what's the pain? And generically, these things are called anesthetics. I just pulled that thread. I just did the etymology on the word and connected it with the opioid crisis and bang, here's what became available to me. These kids, and they're not just kids as we know, these people are treating themselves for a kind of pain that's associated with what? With beauty and aesthetic. The, the word anesthetic means to be, to be disabled where beauty is concerned. To be unable to see beauty, to appreciate it in any sense of the term, not to be able to generate beauty or to be beauty in someone else's life. That's where the suffering unto death virtually seems to be arising 
in that particular sector? What beauty are they missing? The specific kind of beauty, which is the time-honored, the time-vetted kind. Beauty in an adult form is elders. Young people are suffering from the absence of elders and they're suffering unto death. And the macabre arrangement is that older people are looking for elders too. How promising could that possibly be? And yet I can talk to you about it and not dissolve into a world of personal hurt. Because when I think of the word heartbreak, as Kimberly was using it a minute ago, and she went on to talk about break, as in breakups and the rest. And I thought to myself, do you know, it's just as available to us to relate to the phrase heartbreak in terms of heart, as well as in terms of break. And the human heart was built to break. It's very clear. It's built to be able to do that, to roll, if you will, to bend. It has a suppleness to it, which we unlearn at our considerable peril. So heartbreak is that other master to your apprenticeship to life, it seems to me. Well, two masters of the long pause, man. I'm undone. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it is time to, to move to one or two audience questions because we are coming to closing. And it just seems a little bit uh, brash to just go, hey, okay, now some audience questions after, you know. So, um, but yes, now some audience questions. And thanks everybody for joining us. Um, let me just gather myself here with the with the questions okay here's a question from katie katie wonders how do we inhabit the limitations of our individual circumstances from a social justice context how do we inhabit the limitations of our individual circumstances from a social justice context? I'm wondering if that came a lot earlier in the conversation, um, because I feel like we covered that a little bit when we talked about privilege. I think you're right about that, Kimberly. It did come... I'm getting them sent to me, so I think it did. So let's we can move on to a different question. Okay, this this is a good one because it's it touches on elderhood, which we have of course touched on, but not gone really in depth to very uh, specifically. So this is from S. No no full name given. Stephen Jenkinson, not a guru, not a mentor, but what would he say to being an elder? How does he see his role of author? Well, I think what would he say to being an elder is the same thing that Gandhi said about Western civilization. It'd be a very good idea. 
So I'm not I'm not set up to adjudicate the question, right? I'm I'm not looking in the rearview mirror and watching myself close in on myself from behind. It's not because I'm too busy. <laughs> it's just because I can't see the merit. You see, the acknowledgement of any elder function that you might fitfully and temporarily occupy, the acknowledgement of that is not your business. You have your hands full trying to approximate the description from time to time and trying to find a way to distinguish that from your personality quirks and your strivings and your desirousness and, and so forth, no? So the culture has to rely on younger people seeking out elderhood in a time of such a desperate disarray as the one we're in now. And young people's failure to do that will contribute enormously to the full-blown extinction of the function of elderhood in our midst. Because the seeking after it is, it's life-giving. Even though there's a consuming aspect to it, there certainly is a carnivorous, cannibalistic aspect to it. There is. But if an elder is truly an elder, they can find a way not to be eaten while they instruct about food. Well, that's part of the deal in a time like this. I mean, I could I could say it slightly differently, and then I really want to hear what Kimberly has to say about it too. In a time like ours, the question might a parabolic question might be this: What would the last elder do if he or she found out that there were no elders left? Well, at the level of logic, the question doesn't make any logical sense because it contradicts itself from first part to the second. But let's not, I said it's parabolic, so we don't have to obey that nonsense. And you can still ask the question. The last elder, is there such a thing? Well, there was a last carrier pigeon, wasn't there? Yeah. So yes, of course there's such a thing. And it's happened more than once, I suspect. Something like the end of civilization as we know it has happened more than once already. So the last elder cottons on to the fact that there's no elders left. Is that elder going to spend some time and some hard-earned dollars getting a PR firm to put his, his or her name and face on everything that matters and welcome the broken and the misaligned and the walking wounded and so on? Is that it? Or, because I submit to you that's not very elderly, thing to do. But you could reconsider it in these terms. What an elder might actually do is ready themselves for the possible but not very likely advent of elderhood. Ready themselves. In other words, if anybody who's looking wants to know what an elder might do, it's to ready themselves for the oncomingness of elderhood. Not the investiture in themselves, but as a social institution ready themselves to, to comply and to employ the advent of elderhood, not to claim it for themselves. Very unelderly thing to do. It's a very strange proposition because typically in our uh, somewhat questionable psychic development, we've been very encouraged to eat first and cook later. Eat first and grow later. 
certainly from a spiritual point of view, that seems to be the case. But an elder would conf confound those things fundamentally and ready themselves for an elderhood that's not there. And the secret affirmation they're making is, no, by virtue of their being willing to do that, the elderhood is there. It's just informed by the particular wrinkles and troubles of the time. Anything to add? Any thoughts or words, Kimberly? Well, Stephen Jenkinson has said before that his book on elderhood come of age is one of the best literary achievements of the book and one of the least read and um, maybe contended with. And I found that in the conversations that we had, which five of them go in sequence of his major works that was the talk where i had the least foothold the least vocabulary the most vagueness i think that in and of itself says a lot because it's so the conversation tends so much to be outsourced to other cultures whether those are imagined or true and so little imagined within this North American context. But I have, I don't know if this is in the question, but I have asked Stephen Jenkinson himself, uh, like, what do you consider yourself? Uh, a teacher, a practitioner? Uh, what, what do you consider yourself? And I think that I've, I've also asked, well, what do you do when someone makes you into that guru? Because sometimes you're not trying to be a capital T teacher. You're just trying to be yourself. But the hunger of the culture and the other people for someone who knows, for somebody who has a way, for somebody who can give us some kind of answers for something is so strong that then that lands on our doorstep or, you know, in our eye contact and um that those responses are in the book and also uh when we don't assume when when awe is our governing principle then there's no way we can take up so much space in that realm of mystery and awe because we're looking for those answers too or I'm looking for those answers, but that what Stephen Jenkinson has turned it back on me. Like I'd love those answers too. <laughs> if I had them, why we wouldn't be probably having the conversation. Yeah. That, that's, you gotta admit, that's pretty good one. It is good. Yeah. I'd like, the, I'd like the answers too. <laughs> yeah. You've got some real <laughs> doozies. <laughs> yeah. Stephen, you mentioned you're going to be heading out on the road tomorrow, heading to the UK and Ireland uh, with the Knights of Grief and Mystery tour. And uh, Kimberly, I'm wondering if you have anything coming up that you want people to know about or that you're excited about working on. Oh, man, I'm so deep in this conversation. I wasn't really thinking about the future. Um, let's see. Well, hopefully Stephen and Jenkinson and I will meet up in person on the road somewhere here soon. Uh, on a personal note, I'm getting married. That has to do with uh, 
my interaction with Stephen Jenkinson because marriage is certainly holds a lot of limits. So I was having a, a rough go of that of what I actually wanted and if I wanted to be married. And uh, so that could be an answer to your early earlier question too. What's what's changed since then? So yes, that's a big one. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Okay, I think we're coming to the end of our time. I, I just want to give a big thanks to our live audience for joining us and uh, our producer, Jacob Steele, who is responsible for everything behind the scenes and organizing all the wonderful guests like you two that we get on this program. Um, just any closing thoughts, any closing remarks from both of you um, before we say goodbye, hopefully for now. I'll start first. Um, I love resisting the instinct to summarize. I don't ha actually have it anymore, but I'm routinely invited at this moment to somehow put the cherry where it belongs, the marzipan figures on top of the cake. Everything was a preamble to the last 30 seconds, you know, that whole thing. And I think we we did pretty well sort of throughout such that there's not really a lot left. There's a lot of things that deserve our attention, but but we're just simply agreeing to stop, I think. I don't think we're sit sitting here going, right, mission accomplished. Quite the contrary. It's not even clear what the mission might be yet, but that didn't prevent us from proceeding. And certain degree of liftoff became available simply by a willingness to be awestruck right off the top, as I think all of us acknowledge. And uh, the people that accompanied us, they're, they're um, very welcome, I would say, very welcome. So, you know, thank God for the uplift, which is so much different than being hopeful. And uh, thank God for settling back on terra firma and having to go out in my case and oh, feed the sheep who couldn't care less about anything that we came up with. Simply a good balance. It doesn't mean anything here was insignificant. It simply means now, now the world gets to welcome us back after our temporary fit of lucidity. And we can rejoin the fray beset by questions and uncertainties. And in so doing, uh, take up where we left off, slightly altered in the, in the process. Uh, I will say that these parts of the conversation have conversations in general, beginnings and endings have become much more challenging for me because uh, I teach people and I teach people in circumstances where oftentimes they're very doubtful and uh, I am a sort of kind of a cheerleader type by nature. I wasn't an actual cheerleader. Uh, but I, I cheerlead naturally, uh, or as a, you know, I was a yoga teacher. And so it was like, there's always a, a beginning, a middle and an ending. And, and I write, I sell courses. So I write copy and, and that there's, there's usually some kind of small redemptive end because that's how you motivate someone to do something or to go on. And in the midst of 
learning something new, uh, it's it's kind of like, uh, I don't know. I, I've you know how some of those new cars they they turn off on their own and like they all of a sudden they're just like off and then because of how the engines work with electricity or something. I don't know. I've been at a stop sign before where I can't hear that the car is on, but it actually is on. That's kind of how I feel at the end of a conversation. Like I just turned off because I don't really know how to end something anymore in, in a way that's respectful of a new understanding. So, um, so then I'll just leave it there because that's, that's such as my challenge at this part of my development. Thanks to you both so much for letting us be a part of this ongoing conversation between the two of you and uh, just letting everyone know this book is called Reckoning and uh, no redemptive promises, but if you want to check it out and, and uh, maybe you'll find some fruit there. It's available, of course, at banyan.com. I think you can also get the, the audio recordings. Is that true, Kimberly? If, if, if people buy the book, they, there's the, they can actually listen to the conversations as well. Yes, you can get a hardback, a paperback, or an audio version. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you to you Thank and Abanyan. Appreciate the attention. Yeah. Thanks, Kimberly. Thank you. See you down the road. See ya. Okay. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom. Our producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross Makichi. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.